BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022 by making investments from coast to coast. Investments like building charging hubs for fleets of electric buses in California and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Welcome. You are listening to episode four of the Jussie podcast on the Revolver Podcast Network. And we are privileged to be talking with Mr. Dan Webb, who is special prosecutor in the Jussie Smollett case. Uh, Mr. Webb, welcome to Jussie. Thank you for having me on, Tom, and um, look forward to, to talking with you. Okay. Hey, first, I have to say that it's impossible to properly introduce Dan Webb because just listing his most illustrious achievements as a U.S. attorney, defense attorney, special prosecutor, and in many other roles with dozens of landmark cases over 50 years. Dan, can I just mention one specific that I haven't seen in all the media coverage of you in the last several weeks? And that would be that some years ago, along with Rudy Giuliani, who was then U.S. Attorney for the Southern District of New York, co-founded the Organized Crime Drug Enforcement Task Force that, to date, still comprises like 2,500 agents from 11 different federal agencies. And that has led to 44,000 drug-related convictions and seizure of over $300 billion in cash and assets. So congratulations for that. Well, thank you for that. That that did occur in my Tom in my far distant past when I was U.S. attorney in Chicago, uh, and Rudy was the U.S. attorney in New York. And I've been aware over the years that the the drug task force has had quite a bit of success. Although I must tell you, I, I did I did not have the statistics. So thank you for updating me on those those statistics. Oh, we're happy to do that. Uh, but I just thought it was interesting that an accomplishment like that is hardly ever mentioned. So I just had to mention it. Now, I also want to assure you that uh, our review of the Jesse case has one goal. We want to find out the truth, the whole truth about the Jesse case. Now, we know there's already been a verdict. It's very clear and definitive verdict. But we still see there's some questions, uh, some even mysteries about this case. And we figured you would be one of the best to talk to to clarify some of these. And we also want to say we don't care what the truth is. We don't have a dog in the fight. We just want to answer the questions and resolve any lingering doubts. Dan, who asked you or appointed you to be special prosecutor in the Jesse Smollett case? Uh, I was contacted by Judge Tuman, the highly respected judge in the Sir Court of Cook County. He had been assigned to handle the motion that had been filed to appoint a special prosecutor. And after having all the legal briefs and everything, I had nothing to do with that. There was others that were involved in that, so I had no connection to it. But eventually, Judge Tuman, in June of 2019, entered an order that he was going to appoint a special prosecutor. He then went through the uh, process of trying to select a special prosecutor, and it took him a couple of months to do that. 
at some point during his search, he had reached out to me. He and I knew each other from years ago when we were younger lawyers before he became a judge, and I was a young assistant U.S. attorney. We knew each other uh, professionally, uh, and he reached out to me, and we started having a couple conversations. And basically, at the end of the day, Judge Tuman told me that he believed, based on reviewing all the briefs and legal information he'd been given, that there was clearly an unusual disposition of this case by the Cook County State's Attorney's Office. That complete dismissal of the Smollett case had eroded the public's confidence in the Cook County criminal justice system. And Judge Tuman basically discussed with me his view that they needed somebody like me who had had quite a bit of experience over the years as a trial lawyer and also someone that actually had been a special prosecutor on several other occasions. Uh, he felt it was important to help restore the credibility of the court system is to have someone like myself selected to be the special prosecutor so that whatever decisions I made, a special prosecutor would hopefully be viewed by the public as being fair and impartial in trying to deal with the, uh, I call it the, the major crisis of confidence uh, in our Cook County criminal justice system because of the fallout of the Smollett case. And after I talked to Judge Tuman about it, I eventually decided that I would, I would, I would accept it. Okay. Hey, you know, that uh, answers my next question, which was, why did a fourth degree felony disorderly conduct charge case require a special prosecutor? But I believe you just answered that, didn't you? Well, Judge Tubman went through a process. There was briefing done. It was all, he had a complete record in front of him uh, by people that were in favor of or against a special prosecutor. And, Judge Tuman made the decision in part, I believe, because when the state's attorney, Kim Fox, removed herself from having any involvement in the Smollett case when she was Cook, as Cook County State's attorney, the Cook County State's attorney's office appointed her successor to be the prosecutor on the Smollett case. The appointment was in violation of Illinois law. The only way that state's attorney Fox could recuse herself she can't just go out and appoint anybody she wants. She appointed her top deputy to replace her. But the law in Illinois does not allow that. Her obligation under Illinois law was to go. She had to go to court and file a petition for the appointment of a special prosecutor. She did not follow that procedure. She followed a procedure that was not authorized under Illinois law. She just appointed her own prosecutor. Uh, and Judge Tuman found that to be unusual course of conduct because she should have been the one to appoint a special prosecutor and go through the court system, and she did not follow that system. So Judge Tuman did. I see. A little aside question here, if I may. Is it true that you provided all of your exhaustive work and excellent work on this case pro bono at no charge to the city or the county? That is correct, uh, Tom. That When I was asked to be the special prosecutor, uh, I came back to my firm and had discussions with the firm. I believed and my firm agreed with me. In fact, I got great support from the firm and my partners, which I'm very proud of, that if we're going to do something like this, where the public's confidence needs to be restored, that whoever does it should do it pro bono so that there could be no concern that there was any benefit bestowed on my firm for doing it. And it's a public service. 
And we, yes, we did it for, there was no charge whatsoever, nothing. We didn't charge for expenses, time. It was completely pro bono. That is so admirable. And am I to understand that you brought a team of attorneys from Winston Strawn? And correct me if I'm wrong, Winston Strawn is not exactly what you would call a discount law firm, is it? <laughs> no, we're not. We're, <laughs> we're a major law firm in the United States, uh, and we, you know, we charge clients for the work that we do. Uh, but yes, we did this completely pro bono. And yes, I give credit. I had, I couldn't do this by myself. I had a team of at various times, seven or eight lawyers mm-hmm. working pro bono to, uh, to, to, to work on this case and to do it right. Because we had, we were assigned to do two different things. It wasn't as simple enough just to decide whether Mr. There were two things Judge Tuman decided we had to do under his appointment order. We had to do a thorough investigation to determine whether the dismissal of the case against Mr. Smollett was uh, an abuse of discretion and that we would go forward, continue the prosecution, and reindict him. That was our first assignment. That assignment had had some complexities to it because he had originally been indicted, but then the case was completely dismissed with no punishment whatsoever, no requirement that he plead guilty. He didn't even have to admit his guilt. Uh, he didn't have to uh, make a full restitution. He didn't do anything. He just got it dismissed. And so I had to make that decision. But that was prong one. Tuman said, besides doing that, you need to do a thorough investigation as to whether there was any wrongdoing by anybody in the Cook County State's Attorney's Office and the Chicago Police Department. So that was a big assignment, a lot of work. So, yes, if I had to add up the number of hours, I would not want my partners to know exactly what our <laughs> contribution was because it was huge. And But we're proud of it, and we're happy to do it. Well, we wanted to get that out there, too. Hey, uh, let me ask you, why was this case so important to you? Why were you so dedicated to this fourth-degree disorderly conduct case? I'm, gl- I'm glad you asked that question, Tom, because I'm, here, here's what happened. I'm a farm kid from Southern Illinois <laughs> that came to Chicago without a pot to pee in or a window to throw it out of. And this city has been so good to me. I'm telling you, for 40 years, I've had the pleasure of living in this city and practicing law and being part of the, the system of justice here. And I get so enraged, I mean enraged, when I see these talking heads on Fox and CNN and other networks that take unreasonable and unfair shots at the city of Chicago and at Chicago Police Department. The honest-to-God truth is we have a great city with great governance, and we have a great police department. Now, we get criticized because in Chicago we have major issues with gangs, but I am proud of the city, and I'm proud of the Chicago Police Department. I have enormous loyalty to the, the, the people that run the city and, and the Chicago Police Department, And when I saw what Mr. Smollett had done to the Chicago Police Department and the city, I felt that that needed to be investigated to determine if he should be prosecuted. Uh, And and I did it because of my belief in the city and in my belief in the police department that we get unfairly criticized. And in this case, by the way, Tom, the Chicago Police Department really shined. They put 25 people on this case. Because the allegation Mr. Smollett made of a hate crime was serious, and the Chicago Police Department did not sweep it under the rug. 
They didn't just give lip service to it. They tore the matter apart. They accepted Mr. Smollett as a truth sayer, as the victim of a hate crime. They showed respect for him and his family, and they thoroughly tore it apart. And I put six police officers on the witness stand during the trial to tell the jury what the devil these folks did and worked so hard on it with thousands of hours, all this work and effort, and then it turned out to be for naught because it was a fake crime. That's all good to hear. Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like updating turbines at one of our Indiana wind farms and producing more oil and gas with fewer operational emissions in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Dan Webb, can we get to some very specific questions about the case itself? And we want to tell you that we have had some what I consider excellent independent investigative reporters go over every angle of the case. And there was very little there that you hadn't buttoned down entirely. The case was one of the clearest verdicts in recent history, and that was all because of you and your team. But we did find a couple of a little items. Some may consider it little items. Uh, they're kind of mysterious, and we would like to get your take on them. Can we do that? Sure. Okay. I told you to answer your questions. Uh, yes, you did, and you sure have. Okay, you know that the only eyewitness, as far as we know, at the scene near the time of the was supposedly a hate crime that became a hoax, the incident, whatever you want to call it, in downtown Chicago, was a security guard at the Chicago Sheraton named Anthony Moore. Now, Anthony Moore told police on at least three occasions and told the special prosecutor's office and testified in court that he did have a close look at the two suspects that I believe just about everyone agrees were the two main suspects and really only suspects in the case. He had a close look at them running from the scene of the crime, and he identified one of them as a white male. Now, he said the same thing many times, a tall white male. Why was his testimony, in the end, pretty much disregarded by the jury and pretty much, I guess, dismissed by you and your office? Let me answer that. That's a fair question, Tom. Uh, by the way, that it was not dismissed by me and my office. We thoroughly investigated Mr. Moore's information uh, during our investigation. So we're very much aware of Mr. Moore and the jury heard it. Jurors get to resolve these issues. The fact is Mr. Moore's testimony, the evidence is the following, is that he was a security guard and he saw two people with mask on two o'clock in the morning run by him as he was looking out the window of a restaurant where he was doing security work 
and he had, based on my estimate, about one-tenth, one-tenth of one second. <laughs> he had one-tenth of one second to view them as they ran by him, as they were running away from the, the scene of the event. And I spent my life as a trial lawyer at least recognizing that some people honestly believe when they see a, an event that happens so quickly, they can make mistakes. Eyewitness testimony can be mistaken. And, also, and by the way, it can also be accurate. But in this particular case, the evidence was overwhelming that the two people that attacked the fake attack and carried it out were the Austin Darrow brothers, and they're both African-American. There's just no—it was beyond dispute. And so Anthony Moore made an honest mistake. No one has criticized him for it. Uh, I can't speak for the jury, but I believe during the trial, when the jury <coughs> saw how <coughs> insignificant his ability to observe would have been in one-tenth of a second, it did not, at least as far as I know, you have to talk to the jury, did not appear to play a significant role in the case because the evidence was just overwhelming. The two attackers were African-American. They admitted that they were the attackers. Against their interest, they admitted it. And so I think Mr. Moore made an honest mistake and was not a significant event during the trial. Okay, fair enough. Now, I reviewed Anthony Moore's testimony, and I have to say he sounded like a very honest man on the stand. He didn't try to dodge. He didn't change anything. He spoke very frankly. It seemed to me, would you agree that he testified honestly and if he was wrong, it was an honest mistake? I, I just said that, Tom. Yes. I, that's my view as a trial lawyer. It was my view. You didn't hear me attack him at all, okay? No, no. We didn't. People can make honest mistakes. That happens in life and it happens in the courtroom. And he was called as a defense witness. He testified. I never suggested to the jury that that gentleman lied under oath intentionally or nothing like that at all. And I don't believe it. That's good to hear. Also, there came a time when he went down to the special prosecutor's office and repeated his story for the third or fourth time. And I believe at that time, it looks like in the records, it was Sean Weaver of your office who questioned Jesse and went over his statement, and they had a written statement drawn up that he signed. And in court, Anthony Moore seemed to testify that he was made uncomfortable, I guess is fair to say, in the special prosecutor's office. He said he felt pressured. His attorney then said in court that he was pressured and threatened. I didn't see where Anthony Moore said he was threatened, but he did say he was pressured. And it turns out that the written statement that he signed, that he reviewed, he was given a chance to read it, and he signed it, in that statement, they omitted any mention of his identifying one suspect as a white male. Why did that happen? In court, it was not, it was not Mr. Moore's lawyer. It was Mr. Smollett's lawyer right, that right. tried to make it appear as if he was threatened. Uh, which I think the jury rejected. Uh, my office, Sean Weaver was my top, one of my top deputies on this case. He did the interview and, and followed every, every legal process and procedure in doing an interview. But by the way, when we do an interview as a prosecutor, we have the right to try to pursue what really happened. And if we think that someone made a mistake, we have a right to try to pursue that during the course of an interview. 
he, he came down voluntarily and was interviewed by us. We didn't put him in the grand jury or put him under any pressure to do anything, but we did do an interview. And after we did the interview, we gave him a, we wrote it up like we do with every other case, and we gave him a chance to read it, to change it, to edit it, do whatever he wanted to do, and, and he did. And so, look, the fact that he might believe, I don't want to, look, people coming into a special prosecutor office might believe that there's a little bit of pressure there, but at the same time, there's nothing that happened that did anything to try to threaten him or anything whatsoever, and he never said that he was threatened at all. And so we followed normal procedures. We brought out in court exactly what happened, so we had no hidden agenda. The jury knew exactly what happened in our office, and I think the jury concluded nothing improper at all happened. In further testimony by Anthony Moore, he mentioned that he saw a third person after the two Osendero brothers or whomever uh, ran by. He saw a third person in the distance, about 75 feet away, on the sidewalk, on all fours. That conforms our general understanding of the case that after the two alleged assailants attacked Jussie, that was Jussie on all fours. He also said he didn't look like he was in harm's way or was injured. I think he said something like maybe he was looking for something on the ground. And that's why he didn't pursue that. He didn't call out. He didn't go to help. But it does conform to Jussie's story that he was attacked. They knocked him down. They roughed him up some. And the white guys, at least one of which he said at one time was a white guy, ran away. Wouldn't that compel the police to at least do some investigation along those lines, start looking for a possible white suspect? Well, that clearly happened. The police officers tell yes, the police officers were, <laughs> they were trying to figure out who did this. Uh, so the police officers, uh, <clears throat> when they were doing their investigation, uh, before the evidence developed that it was a hoax, the police were giving complete credibility to Mr. Smollett's allegation. So the fact that one of the attackers, according to Smollett, was white, was clearly investigated by the police. So there was never... The police never ignored that. That was part of their investigation. Eventually, it turned out to be incorrect because we know who the attackers were, and they were African-American, but the police never ignored, ever at all, that, the, that Mr. Smollett told the police that he believed one of his attackers was white. So that was always part of the investigation. Okay, fair enough. I, I didn't know that they had pursued the wide yeah. range of possible suspects. There was, yes. BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022. Investments like acquiring America's largest biogas producer, Arkea Energy, and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America.
Okay, that's good to clarify that. Now, you mentioned the Austin Dario brothers. We know that now they have confessed. And after your press conference, or it, technically, I guess it was a police press conference, where you laid out the whole case after it was broken wide open, you had the confessions of the Austin Darrow brothers. You had so much other evidence. I believe, thanks to that press conference, and I'm sure you were a huge part of that, the case was over before it started. I mean, it was just such a dead bang. Here it is. Here's the story. I have to tell you, as for me, before I was asked uh, to participate as a host in this podcast, when they first came to me, I said, well, what are you talking about? You don't need to do any podcast. That case is over. There is no doubt. And after they brought some more information, I'm only saying that there were some curious things. And one of them is about the Osendero brothers. Can you tell us how the police or your office first got on the trail of the Osendero brothers? I will do that. That's a fair question. Um, and it's actually, it shows you that the police officers that were put in charge of this case are hardworking, really dedicated police officers uh, and detectives, and they testified during the trial. And basically, this is what they explained. They didn't know who, what happened here. They didn't have any evidence. Okay, Smollett is saying he got attacked by two people. One was white. They yelled out all these mega country, anti-Trump slogans, and right. and, and 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 they thought it was a you know a serious. And they put a noose around the Mr. Smollett's neck. They had no evidence. Smollett didn't. As it turned out at trial, Smollett refused to cooperate with the police after he reported the crime. He didn't cooperate. He refused to turn over his phone. He re- refused to give any DNA. And so Smollett would not cooperate. But the police went ahead and investigated it anyway. And what they did, and Tom, one thing that's amazing in this case is that the power of surveillance cameras in America today is extraordinary. Mm-hmm. What the police did, they literally went out and started with no evidence whatsoever, and they figured out. They were doing surveillance, and they saw two people get out of a cab at 1 o'clock in the morning over in the Streeterville area, and they traced that cab back. And they traced the cab back to a, what's called the uh, Near North Side when the, the two folks, the Austin Bros, got into the cab. They had been in an Uber because they were trying to disguise their movements, as Mr. Smollett told them to. So they, the police, with good police work, found the cab number from surveillance cameras, traced the cab back to where they picked up the rider. The rider was picked up from an Uber and traced the Uber back to the Osendero brothers. That's how they broke the crime open. You know, uh, that tells me that the Jussie Smollett case, in its own way, is kind of like a case study in modern police investigations. Is that right? I think that's a good observation. I think, yes, I had not honestly realized... I don't have doorbell cameras at my house, and I truly didn't realize the surveillance cameras that are around the city, not just police cameras, but merchants, everybody has cameras. <laughs> and every, and which for police, it's an enormous benefit. And even in this case, the police were able to, in, by the way, in, in, a, in a polar vortex, one of the coldest weeks in the Chicago's history, these police officers were trudging down streets, going up to residential houses and looking for doorbell cameras, 
so that they could trace the, the people that uh, got out of this, that, that were being walked in the area after the, the crime took place. And it was amazing where surveillance cameras are and how fast the Chicago Police Department, but with a lot of resources, reviewed literally thousands of hours of surveillance tape to put this case together. It was a great job by the Chicago Police Department. You know, I have to say again, it's such an honor to interview you. You are providing such clarity to every aspect of this case, and I appreciate it. We still have some more hard questions, though. Just one quick one about the Osandero brothers. There came a time when you served a search warrant on their home. The police searched the home, and they found what's been described in news reports as a cache of guns, including tactical weapons and ammo, and some drugs, heroin and cocaine, at their home when they served the search warrant. And Now, that seemed to indicate to some people that the Osandero brothers might be facing far more serious charges than disorderly conduct for the weapons and the drugs and whatever at their home. No charges were ever brought. What happened to all that? What was that? Well, here's what well, this all was brought out during the trial, so the jury gets to decide it, and they have. But here's what the facts are, Tom. The facts are there were guns in the Osendero residence, all of which are legally registered. There was not a single illegal gun ever in that residence. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, unless you want to say there should be no Second Amendment. Uh, oh, no, and, I don't. No, I know. I'm not, I'm not saying you're saying that, okay? But, but I'm saying that, look, the defense tried to make a huge deal out of how awful this was, a cache of It's not true. There were, I, think there's, I think there were three guns found, and every one of them, I, I don't remember the exact, they were all registered. Every one of them was, mm -hmm. and, was re, and were returned to the Osendero brothers because they were legally in possession with void cards. And so the guns were, a, a, I think, a nothing issue for the jury. People do have a right to have guns if they want, under, as long as you do it legally. Number two, as far as drugs... There was one small, clear envelope that had a speck of white in it that they couldn't even test it out to prove what it was. So that's the drug issue. That was all presented to the jury, and it was a nothing issue, completely nothing issue. This is the last area I want to get to, and that is Jussie's sentencing is coming up, I believe, around March 8th, 10th, something like that. And I see, and I was a little surprised to see, in at least one other interview you've given, you provided some uh, general thoughts about the sentencing. And I took that as kind of courageous of you to do that. I, it's kind of a sign of your integrity. If I said something stupid or wrong about Jussie Smollett and the sentencing, well, that doesn't matter. I'm just a stupid talk show host. If you said something wrong, about the sentencing in public before the sentencing, well, that could be a big problem. You're the special prosecutor. You're going to be there for the sentencing, aren't you? Oh, yes. I'll, yes, I'll be there at the sentencing. Yes, that's, that's part of my job. Okay, so can we talk about the sentence a little bit? Our investigative reporters have come up with some details about the punishment of Jussie Smollett. I want to get to your opinion, but they provide a picture of pretty draconian punishment for disorderly conduct already. Jussie was suspended from Empire. He was making 
oh, somewhere between three hundred and five hundred thousand dollars an episode. He was a rising superstar in TV. Empire was a big hit show. He was suspended. Then he was fired. Then Empire was canceled entirely. Jesse can't get work right now. Nobody's talking to Jesse right now. It has cost him millions of dollars already, including whatever the cost of the defense was. And I'm sure that's not a small bill. With all that in mind, I wonder, how much should we punish Jesse Smollett? Well, that's a, that's a fair question, too, Tom. I mean, sentencing is coming up. I think it's March 10th. Uh, I've said in the past that, <clears throat> and I repeat for your audience, that sentencing is exclusively and totally in the control and decision-making of the trial judge. In this case, is Judge Lynn, who I publicly stated earlier after the trial, did a incredibly good job as the trial judge in this case. Mm-hmm. He's a, he was extremely experienced. He knew how to handle the trial. And uh, this trial went smoothly because of his skill and ability. And he's a great, uh, I believe, tribute to the Cook County criminal justice system. He is the one that gets to decide sentencing. I don't have anything to do with sentencing except the following. Under the law at sentencing, the prosecutor and the defense lawyer are given a chance to speak to the judge to go through the facts of the case and to discuss. And at sentencing, anything can be considered. So it's standard operating procedure in every sentencing in America that at sentencing, I will be given a chance at sentencing to be able to be heard by the judge. And he'll hear from Mr. Smollett's lawyers. And then the judge and exclusively the judge will decide on sentencing. I don't have a clue as to what Judge Lynn will decide, although I have stated, and I would state again, that it is his prerogative to determine sentencing, and whatever sentence he determines is appropriate is perfectly acceptable to the special prosecutor. That's his job. That's not our job. At sentencing, though, I have a right to be heard, and I've stated that I will probably, I don't know exactly there will be two points that would be obvious for me to make. Point one is that this underlying criminal conduct was serious. I said earlier to fake a hate crime and denigrate the seriousness of a hate crime and to lie to the police on six different occasions. I don't know how anyone, I mean, the police officers in this city have a lot of things to do, including homicide investigations. For Mr. Smollett to decide to send them on a wild goose chase and burn up hundreds of hours, 26 police officers that could have been doing other things. His conduct was a serious assault on the police department and the city of Chicago, and it was wrong. So the underlying conduct is not insignificant, and I'll probably make that point. Number two, Mr. Smollett had every right to testify in his own trial, and that was his right. However, you have no right to lie under oath to a jury. And I pointed out during my cross-examination of Mr. Smollett that he made false statements to the jury on several occasions. I argued that to a jury when it was over with, and the jury convicted him. So I can't speak for the jury, but I don't believe when somebody lies under oath to a jury that that should be ignored at sentencing. The case law says it's proper to consider. Now, that's up to the judge again. I don't. Judge Lynn will decide that. But what I and so Judge Lynn will decide the sentence. Whatever he decides will be acceptable to the special prosecutor. We've done our job. 
we'll show up at sentencing and we'll, we'll do what we're supposed to do and let the judge make his decision. Fair enough. Can I ask you personally, what do you think about Jussie? Who is Jussie? Why did he do this? What do you think? No, I don't. I honestly, I don't. I, I stick with the evidence at the trial. So the jury heard the evidence. I told them in, in closing argument, excuse me, what I just told you, that I thought that he engaged in serious criminal misconduct. I summarized the evidence for the jury. And, um, and I, as a prosecutor, I don't think I should ever go beyond what happened in the trial. So whatever good works or whatever kind of character he has shown through most of his life uh, shouldn't come into play at sentencing? No, no, that's not correct at all. His, Thanks. He has a team of lawyers, I think five. They're excellent lawyers. They have every right to call out to the judge everything he's done in his life that's a good thing. They have every right to call out the things you pointed out that you would call that he's already been punished because of the events that occurred. They have every right to do that, and they will. So the judge will, and the judge has a, a, a detailed investigative report called a pre-sentence investigation. So all of the facts that should be called out to benefit Jesse, I can assure you, have been presented already in a report and will be presented at the sentencing. I have to let you go. I uh, thank you for taking the time, to, and I wish you the best of luck, and uh, thank you for having me. I don't know if there's much good at all that has come out of the Jesse Smollett case. It's kind of sad. Uh, but I will say one thing, that Dan Webb has now been nationally recognized and acclaimed as one of the very finest lawyers in America over the past 50 years. I applaud you for that, and I salute you. Well, thank you for your kind comments. Um, I have enjoyed the practice of law for many years and enjoy it, and hopefully we'll continue to enjoy it for a few more years. Hey, Dan, the next time I get arrested, can I get you as my attorney? Give me a call. <laughs> thanks. All right. Hey, uh, thanks thank for all your time. Thank you. This has been Episode 4 of Jussie from Revolver. Listen on iTunes, Spotify, or where you find your favorite podcasts. BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022 by making investments from coast to coast. Investments like building charging hubs for fleets of electric buses in California and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America.